This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Bill Goldstein discusses his new book, The World Broke in Two, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forster, and The Year That Changed Literature. Then PW Associate News Editor John Meyer looks at the recent and upcoming changes at the New York Times Book Review. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. I think we're finally getting out of the summer doldrums, Mark. There's yes, a, yeah, we got There's a, a lot of stuff happening, and it's happening toward the top of the list, which we haven't right. seen so much lately. Uh, on fiction, we have a new number one, Any Dream Will Do, by Debbie McComber. Uh, our review is not so positive. We said that venerable romance author McComber's latest inspirational novel suffers from uninspired generic plotting. There's a paint-by-numbers narrative about uh, a woman whose embezzlement on her brother's behalf sent her to prison for three years and a pastor who helps her start afresh as they begin to fall in love. And uh, McComber has billions of fans. There's no surprise that this is at the top of the list, uh, but perhaps not one of her best efforts. Uh, moving down a little bit, number five, we have The Good Daughter by Karen Slaughter. Uh, we say that this is a gripping standalone novel. Uh, and in the prologue, uh, a couple of burglars break into the home of an attorney uh, who advocates on behalf of outlaw bikers, drug gangs, and child killers, as well as abortion clinics and unions. And uh, these thugs who break in kill his wife and uh, injure his daughter's. And uh, it's everyone's confused as to why this might have happened because uh, one of the people who did it is actually someone that he's represented right. in the past. And then flash forward 28 years later, and one of the daughters uh, is now dealing with some some of these issues herself. She's a lawyer, and she gets caught in a school shooting that revives memories of her trauma. Slaughter keeps the twists coming, we say, but some plot developments come at the expense of psychological depth. Uh, so that's at uh, number five. Just below it, number six, Barely Legal, a Herbie Fisher novel by Stuart Woods and Parnell Hall. Uh, we say this is a cleverly plotted comic thriller about New York lawyer Herbie Fisher who gets called in at the last minute to defend a college kid who's accused of selling drugs at a party. And uh, Stone Barrington, who's Woods' main series lead, shows up but really lends uh, minimal support as Herbie manages to stumble his way to the exciting, satisfying climax. We say the courtroom scenes are convincing, and a host of inept crooks will resonate with fans of Donald Westlake's caper novels, which is very high praise. 
At number eight, The Last Tutor by Philippa Gregory, uh, very well known for her Plantagenet and Tudor novels. Mm. Um, this one is about Lady Jane Grey and her two sisters. We don't have a review of it yet, uh, but certainly Gregory is very well known for these books, uh, which are extremely well regarded. And uh, fans of this particular era in English history will be, of course, fascinated. And finally, down at number 16, The Paris Spy by Susan Ilya McNeil. This is the seventh Maggie Hope mystery set in 1942. It's got a, a beautiful cover uh, in, done in a sort of historical style. And uh, Maggie Hope is an American-raised British spy who here is disguised as a fashionable Irish lady uh, so that she can go to Nazi-occupied Paris mm-hmm. and... Uh, do some spying as well as searching for her German half-sister, who's a resistance fighter. Uh, We say that a fast-paced climax leads to an ending that will leave readers eagerly awaiting the next installment. And those unfamiliar with previous novels might be confused by Maggie's family background, but series fans should appreciate the developments. All right. Sounds good. That's what we've got. All right. Well, uh, we also have a new number one in the nonfiction side uh, of Mess and Moxie, Rankling Delight Out of This Wild and Glorious Life by Jen Hatmaker. She's the best-selling humorist and and author. Uh, uh, Her previous book was For the Love. She's also a blogger, a pastor, HDB star, and a mother of five. And she'll be familiar to many a uh, evangelical Christian reader. Our review says she's like a friend whose laugh that most of the time is fun to listen to, but sometimes is too much. Uh, here, Hatmaker piles on stories about binging food alongside a bevy of kid poop jokes and kids learn human anatomy jokes. We, we say here that Hatmaker has humor and spage, which will please those looking for laughs, but her work will disappoint readers wishing for something with more depth. Um, we did do, I believe, an author uh, uh, Q&A with her. We also have uh, next on number six, starred review going from Christianity to Buddhism. This is uh, a star review of why Buddhism is true, the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment by Robert Wright. Uh, Wright, who's the author of The Moral Animal, fascinates readers with his journey through evolutionary psychology in search for answers to the question of whether Buddha's diagnosis of the human condition is true. So it's it's uh, it's a look into Buddhism and, as the subtitle said, the philosophy of meditation. We say Wright's joyful and insightful book is both entertaining and informative, equally accessible to general audiences and more experienced practitioners. So not too bad. At number eight, we have a book from a best-selling author, uh, Corey Taylor. He was the author of the uh, New York Times best-selling Seven Deadly Sins. He's also the lead singer for Slipknot. Uh, and, and other bands. This one is called America 51, a probe into the realities that are hiding inside, quote unquote, the greatest country in the world. Uh, we don't have a review of this, but uh, the publicity material says the always outspoken hard rock vocalist begins the book with a reflection of what his itinerant youth and frequent worldwide travels in his multi-platinum band Slipknot uh, have taught him about what it means to be an American in an increasingly unstable world. Uh, that's at number eight. Um, 
lots of fans uh, and readers going for that. At number nine, uh, Dream Differently, Candid Advice for America's Students. And this is by Dr. Vincent uh, Bertram. And this is the uh, uh, this is a guide for college students hopefuls. Uh, the press material says today's job seekers should have had at least a basic understanding of trigonometry and other sciences in the STEM fields. That's uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Labor Statistics projects that more than 1.3 million job openings in math and computer science fields by 2022. So this is a guide toward that. So this is advice for students maybe looking to not go into uh, the humanities. At number 10, The Emigrant Edge, How to Make It Big in America by Brian Buffini. Uh, he's an Irish immigrant who went from rags to riches and shares his strategies for anyone who wants to achieve the American dream in this book. And that's all we have in nonfiction. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Bill Goldstein tells us how four famous authors struggled with self-doubt and illness and politics in 1922. We'll be right back. I'm Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Bill Goldstein in the office with us. His new book is The World Broken Two, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forster, and the Year That Changed Literature. Hello, Bill. So glad you could join us. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm so glad to be here. So uh, this, as the title suggests, that uh, this is the year that this the, the broke into, mm-hmm. and that was 1922, which, which was the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. So t- tell us about this watershed year. So the title of the book comes from a line of Willa Cathers, and she wrote in... Uh, uh, it was the, the the line that Willa Cather wrote is the world broke in two in 1922 or thereabouts, and she was talking about changes in literary fashion and lamenting that the world had changed, the world of literature had changed so much at that time, and she was referring, as you say, to the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses, which was in February of 1922, and then at the end of the year by uh, The Wasteland, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which was published in October of 1922. And so what she was lamenting that the, the kind of storytelling that she prized had gone out of fashion, and the, the cataclysm of that for her was this this lost world, uh, even though, it, oddly, I mean, in that year, she had great success. She published a successful novel that the next year won the Pulitzer Prize. But the changes in literature were really about the way in which storytelling unfolded. And what Ulysses pointed the way to, and also uh, the wasteland, was a kind of interior landscape of how did the mind work and how could you get that down on paper. And that was something that had not just been invented by Joyce. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a long sort of gestating movement toward Ulysses. But what Virginia Woolf, D.H. Lawrence, uh, E.M. Forster, and T.S. Eliot himself were dealing with was how could you reproduce on the page most effectively mm-hmm. the way in which people thought and how doing that could you really create living breathing characters. Because Virginia Woolf saw what James Joyce was doing, but 
didn't like it. She hated Ulysses, and she thought it was a work of genius, but she thought it wasn't a, gen a work of genius of the first order. She thought it was raw and unfinished. And so what she wanted to do was figure out how to draw something tighter together to reproduce what a woman would think like. How could you see a woman from inside and give a sense of a woman as a living, breathing character? So set the stage for us. Um, this this period was a very tumultuous period culturally, yes. politically. Um, people still recovering from what was at the time thought to be the war to end all wars, right. the influenza epidemic. What what was going on that led people in the direction of this urge to realism to depict the world as and depict people as they were? Well, I think the fact that it was more than three years after the armistice, um, which had come in November of 1918, but still that the war was still very much present in people's minds, in people's lives, on the streets of London. And so when I wanted to tell this story, at first I saw that what happened to Virginia Woolf in January of 1922 was that she was about to turn 40. And mm -hmm. she was in great despair about turning 40 because she was having a lot of creative difficulties. She was just about to finish a book called Jacob's Room, which is her first kind of experimental novel. And it was published to great success at the end of 1922. But she did not see herself as close to completing it as she wanted to be. And she was also afraid that when it was published, it would appear sterile acrobatics. So you're looking at this woman who of course, is one of the great writers of the 20th century of all time, who was in this trough of despair about her birthday and and about the state of her work. And so she wrote a letter to E.M. Forster, which is how I then ended up bringing E.M. Forster into the story. And she wrote that she was also very sick with influenza. And she wrote, writing is like heaving bricks over a wall. And she said that she was about to turn 40, but she had spent so much time sick in bed that you should really only count her 35. <laughs> and so that led me to what was going on with E.M. Forster at the time. And one of the things that she said in this letter was that she was, uh, everybody was talking about Proust, but she was sitting by and hearing their reports and she was shivering on the brink, she said, because she was afraid if she read it, she would be submerged and go down and down and down and never come up again. So that was January. Forster is also in great despair. Uh, he's in India. He hasn't been able to work on a passage to India, what we know as a passage to India for years. He had, he had begun it before World War I and abandoned it in about 1913. So he had spent nine years without writing anything of this novel, and he had last published a novel, Howard's End, in 1910. So he hadn't published a novel in 12 years. Again, here's this writer we think of as one of the great writers of the 20th century who had not published a novel in a decade and who had really stopped thinking of himself even as a novelist. So these are the personal stories, but the story of World War I that's hanging over it is that one, the, the, the presence of it, as I say on the streets, the absence of so many men who had been killed in the war, and as Eliot puts it in The Wasteland, I had not known, I, I'm getting it not exactly right, but that, that death had undone so many. And it's it's an echo of Dante. And so you have this sense of London still 
destroyed by the war. And what I found as I started to do research on the political aspects of this as the background to, to what is happening in 1922 is that it's only in 1921, the fall of 1921, that uh, in England, the licensing hours for pubs and restaurants are relaxed and go back to what is called their pre-war liberties. So you see that the war has persisted even into the winter of 1921-1922. They're still debating, even in the spring of 1922, what these hours should be. And you can go in London, uh, down streets in the theater district, and on one side of the street, the regulations are one way, and on the other side, the regulations are another way. So you have this war still there, and... What Virginia Woolf does is she is afraid of reading Proust, but then she does read Proust, and it transforms her life and her creative outlook. And she's soon writing, she says, with the usual fabulous zest. And that's in the spring of 1922. She writes a story, begins a story called Mrs. Dalloway in Bond Street, which by the end of the year uh, gives rise, she writes in her diary, Mrs. Dalloway has branched into a book. So that's the evolution of her life in that year. But of course, what's happening, even in the story, Mrs. Dalloway and Bond Street, is that Clarissa Dalloway walks out of her house and she's walking through London and it seems like such a beautiful day. And then she looks around and she sees that not everyone seemed to be on errands of happiness. And so you get the sense of the war is in her mind. She walks around and she's looking and she says, ah, the war is over. But of course, the fact that she's thinking that the war is over is the surest sign that it's not. And I drew D.H. Lawrence into the story because D.H. Lawrence had fled England during the war. He, he and his German wife, Frida, were sort of hounded out of England, uh, suspected as spies. And he's mm. been living in Sicily. And he begins the year, as he writes in a letter, uh, fighting for the new incarnation. And what does he do? He says he's tired of Europe. And so he leaves Europe entirely. And he goes first to Ceylon, and then he goes to Australia, and then he goes to Taos, New Mexico, which is where he ends the year rather happily. But he's driven by the demons of what happened to him in World War I. And he writes a novel, very autobiographical novel. I think it's unjust, unjustly neglected. Uh, it's called Kangaroo. And it's written in a hundred-day burst when he's in Australia. He basically decides, I haven't written a novel, a word of a novel, in a year by June of 1922. So he, too, is in this creative trough. He hasn't written anything substantive. And he then decides that he's just going to transcribe, basically, his life with his wife, Frida. I mean, he starts transcribing their conversations. The novel begins with two travelers, a writer and his wife, arriving in Sydney, Australia, and basically tracks them, you know, for a hundred days. And the novel ends when they get on the ship and leave, leave Australia on their way to uh, the United States. But what he does is the center of that novel is a chapter which is more than twice as long as any other chapter called The Nightmare. And it looks back on the period in 1917 when he and his wife begin to have this very bad time in England. And he has to exorcise those demons. So World War One is hanging over him, too, and just the way it hangs over the wasteland, the way it hangs over all these writers' lives and in t the entire country of England was fascinating to me. And I tried to link that mood 
to the work that they're beginning to do because I, I think that their the break with the styles of the past that Ulysses represented freed them to find new techniques that would match the fact that they sensed the overhanging past living in the present, which is, of course, what Proust is about, the way the past persists in the present. Wow. So um, <laughs> I'm just amazed. Takes my you, breath away. You have all of this um, memorized. So we've gotten uh, these personal backgrounds for three of the four authors you mentioned. What about T.S. Eliot? Well, T.S. Eliot uh, is, is a very unusual uh, person, case, because we, of course, remember him as one of the great, I keep saying, one of the great writers of the 20th century. And he's perhaps the most famous and most influential poet of the of the 20th century and the wasteland is universally acclaimed as his greatest work most influential work um and what is so surprising about t.s Eliot at this time is in fact it's it's a year that ends in triumph for him but it begins again with such despair he has had a nervous breakdown uh in 1921, at the end, uh, in the fall of 1921, and he takes a three-month leave from his job. He uh, works in Lloyd's Bank, which uh, is either a disaster, which his friend Ezra Pound thinks, or it's actually a way of having order and structure in his life that is actually important to him, because he likes working in the bank, even though all these other people think, oh, this great writer should not be toiling away in a bank. Mm. So he has a nervous breakdown. He goes away for three months. Part of the nervous breakdown is the difficulties of his marriage to, to Vivian Elliott, his wife, who he had married in 1915 very impulsively. They only knew each other for about a month. And so I, I say in the book that I think their happiest moments were before the wedding. Um, and there's great blame on both sides um, for this, for the difficulties of the marriage. And uh, Elizabeth Bowen, the writer Elizabeth Bowen, once referred to them as two people bound up in grinding proximity. So that marriage is then reflected in uh, the wasteland, but so is the nervous breakdown. So he goes away. He then goes to treatment in Switzerland with a, a psychiatrist, or a, I'm not sure he's actually a psychiatrist, but he seeks you know, uh, psychological help at, at a rest cure in Lausanne, Switzerland, with Dr. Roger Vitoz. And Vitoz is, is not Freudian per se, but it's a talking cure, and and Vitoz likes to hold the patient's head as if he can sort of transform the brain waves. And so, while uh, Elliot is on his uh, leave, first in uh, England and then in Switzerland, he's working on the poem because, of course, the reason for the nervous breakdown is that he's had these fragments of poems uh, for years, and he doesn't know how to knit them mm. together, and he. Uh, writes to a friend at the end of 1921, I've been working on this poem. It's about 800 or a thousand lines. I do not know whether it will work. And so m only a few months before this poem is finished and then by the end of the year published, he doesn't know that it will actually happen or that he can make it work. And that to me is so poignant and so revelatory really of the creative process that, that even moments, as it were, before 
a great writer is is finishing what will be his great work, he still feels that it's in disarray, just as Virginia Woolf looked at Jacob's room and thought it was sterile acrobatics. And so Eliot, who had never fought in the war, uh, was still haunted, as he says, in the, by the deaths that are all around. I had not thought that death had done undone so many. And so he sees this London landscape, the wasteland, which is also an interior personal wasteland, the, the sad marriage, the, the breaking of his ideals. He writes to his mother that the poem is about the breaking of his ideals. A friend of his says to Virginia Woolf, who records it in her diary, she, that when she heard The Wasteland, she saw that it was Tom's autobiography, a melancholy one. And so the war has changed England. It's changed him the war, as all of these works show, uh, did not only affect the fighting men, but the entire country. And uh, so I think that's really, I hope I've answered the question. I mean, I, I, I've gone uh, deep into the wasteland, as people tend to do. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Bill Goldstein, author of The World Broke In Two, about the the internal struggles that these writers were facing in 1922 and how they transformed that into art that was really not much like anything anyone had seen. How did the world react? Well, I, I just love what you said, though. I mean, I, I had, that had never occurred to me. I mean, that, that the interior struggles that these people are facing, that in a certain sense, what they're trying to do is get down onto the onto the page, the interior landscapes of their characters' minds, and yet, of course, their own interior lives are in such turmoil. So, thank you. I'm going to use, use that little <laughs> crazy. The, the other thing that you make me think of is, uh, just to sort of sum up a little bit what uh, I'm trying to do, and then I'll, I'll get to you know how the world reacted, is that I was talking to a guy who works at City Hall. Uh, I happened to meet him in an event, and uh, he is a, has a political job, but he told me, as people often do confess when they hear that you work in publishing or are a writer, that he himself was a struggling screenwriter and he was working on the screenplay, but he couldn't make it work and he had been working on it for a long time. And so I told him what my book was about and that Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot, etc., were struggling too. And he was surprised to hear that. And he said, well... Most people think great art just happens, and it doesn't. And I thought, God, this person who never read my book, only heard a little bit about it, caught it better than I had really ever been able to do. So uh, the, to answer your question, though, uh, the, the world reacted to these works with great acclaim. I mean, I'll, I'll say what happens. I, I did, though, leave this, I leave this part to an epilogue in my book because I keep the focus so tightly, or I try to, on what is happening to these people in 1921. I give, uh, 1922, I give the background, and I hope I've synthesized their biographies enough um, so that they are uh, 
completely understandable to people. But what I wanted to show was what they were working on in 1922. And so Mrs. Dalloway, as I say, um, Virginia Woolf uh, wrote in her diary that it had branched into a book. E.M. Forster begins work again in the spring of 1922 on what becomes a passage to India because he too read Proust and, and was very influenced by it. And so he publishes that novel in 1924. Mrs. Dalloway is a great success when it's published in 1925, and Virginia Woolf is immediately acclaimed as one of the great women writers, which is, of course, one of the things that she resisted being identified mm. as. And one of the reasons she reacted, I think, so um, uh, violently, in a way, to Ulysses, because she saw what the men were writing, and it helped her decide what she wanted to do differently as a woman writer. So she saw what the men were doing, and then it helped her hone what she, as a woman, wanted to be writing, which is Mrs. Mrs. Dalloway. So Mrs. Dalloway was a, a very big success, a very commercial success for her. And in fact, they were able to add um, uh, extra rooms to their country house uh, called Monk's House, which didn't have indoor plumbing. And so every time one of her books would be successful, they would add more conveniences uh, to the house and add on to it. Um, the Wasteland is published at the end of 1922. It's the, it's, the most complete uh, sort of story from beginning to end because uh, by the end of the year it is out and with great success. Uh, but the drama, I thought, of the year was that uh, for Eliot, he does so much to procrastinate and make the publication of the book impossible. He he won't negotiate. He won't send anyone any copies of this poem. I mean, it ta it's not clear until September uh, and, the, and the poem appears in October, that it will actually be published. So it's the longest uh, gestation period for a publication of uh, a poet who uh, does everything that he can to sort of sabotage his own own uh, own success. Uh, these These works are claimed, and yet I think it's taken us almost a century to really absorb their importance, uh, because they are still uh, radical works. People still read Mrs. Dalloway with wonder about Virginia Woolf's ability to pin down on the page the curlicues of this character's mind and how she's so successfully woven in Clarissa Dalloway's experience with the sense of London as a living city. I think that's the same thing that happens in The Wasteland. You come to it with confusion often about all of the very complicated references uh, in it. And yet if you read it as Eliot read it, which was much more for the sound than the sense, he sounded out poems based on their rhythm before he actually paid attention to the words in a, in a way. And it reflected, uh, as his sister later said at the end of her life, that when he was a little boy, he used to sit on the on the street with her and they would just speak to one another in this kind of sing-song nonsense words. But, but the rhythm was the most important part. And so you can make sense of it by just listening to the rhythm of the poem and then finding in it these little bits of autobiography that too, you know, that also like Mrs. Dalloway are woven into the life of London and how the war has changed this city. They're both very urban works. 
And what was the interconnectedness between or amongst all these writers? I mean, do they, did they correspond? Did some know each other? Some didn't? Uh, they knew each other. Uh, most of the, well, the, the closest were Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot and E.M. Forster. Virginia Woolf uh, was a, a, a doyen of what we call Bloomsbury, obviously. And um, even before her greatest fame as a writer, she was sort of at the center of this social world. And I loved what one writer, uh, Enid Bagnold, who created National Velvet, uh, wrote later of Bloomsbury, that it was an ungeographical location, uh, but that what was at the center of it was a woman with a magnet, Virginia Woolf. And so Virginia Woolf knew T.S. Eliot because she published him. And they met only a few days after the armistice in November of 1918. So it seemed such a perfect thing that their entire relationship was a post-war relationship. It was a very complicated friendship, one of great, not quite rivalry because they were doing so such different things. But Virginia Woolf, even though she and Tom Elliott, that's that's his name, Thomas Stearns Elliott, became close, she was always very wary of him because she never felt that Tom admired her writing. She wrote to her sister Vanessa once, not that Tom admires my writing, damn him. Uh, but she never felt he gave her regard for her work. Uh, and yet she had great reverence for his and, and published it. So one of the great things that I found, again, you know, I, I had this idea. I wanted to tell the story. Thank God the details bore out that there was a story. Uh, she's sick with influenza. He's had his nervous breakdown. He comes back to London and they see each other in March for the first time in a long time. And she writes in her diary, well, you know, Tom was here. He's finished what he says is his best work. I think he takes heart, I think, from that safe in his desk. And he says, well, the Hogarth Press can publish it. And she then uh, talks about he he's, he's sometimes um, as slippery as an eel. I mean, she, she gives you a great sense of what Tom Elliott must have been like in person. The same week that she records this visit from Tom Elliott, E.M. Forster, Morgan Forster, his name is Edward Morgan Forster, comes back from a year-long sojourn in India where he's tried to revive a passage to India, but he's failed. And so she writes in her diary this account of this visit from Morgan, who she said was depressed to the verge of inanition. And he's just been uh, depressed by the fact that he can't write. And he's also had this romantic calamity. The, the man that he is in love with, uh, an Egyptian tram conductor uh, whom he had met during World War I in Alexandria, um, he saw him on his way back from India. And Muhammad el Adil is dying of consumption. Mm. And he, he dies in June of uh, May or June of 1922. It's not exactly clear when, when he dies. Uh, there's, there are no letters that give the date of it. So he's depressed to the verge of inanition. Well, that then led me to D.H. Lawrence again, because D.H. Lawrence knew E.M. Forster. And when E.M. Forster and D.H. Lawrence spent some time together in 1915, D.H. Lawrence used the very same word to describe what E.M. Forster had been like in 1915, dying of inanition. It's such an unusual word anyway, and that both these writers, Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence, would use the same word to describe E.M. Forster wow. at seven, these, these are seven years different. So you see the stasis that has 
shaped his life, that has in some way destroyed his life. And so that's, again, another reason I started thinking about what, what D.H. Lawrence was doing. So D.H. Lawrence never met Virginia Woolf, uh, but they were both on each other's minds a great deal. And actually, the Hogarth Press, Virginia Woolf's publishing company, published some work by D.H. Lawrence. And what I found was that Forster was very much on Lawrence's mind, even during the whole year where he's vagabonding it around the world. And as soon as he arrives in Taos, New Mexico, he writes a letter to E.M. Forster. And he says, um, you know, I found your letter. I guess E.M. Forster has written to him, but that letter is lost. And he says, um, writes in, in, in a kind of outrage, well, you know, I'm very glad to hear from you, but, but you made a great mistake in, in uh, valorizing uh, the business people of Howard's end, Henry Wilcox and his his children and, and that side of it. He's still angry about Howard's end, you know, more than a decade later. And uh, so I just saw in the way in which these people interacted that they either were very close or their work was very much on each other's minds. And what I found to be most coincidental and then I realized was a kind of pattern was that in September 1922, E.M. Forster and T.S. Eliot both are invited to stay with Leonard and Virginia Woolf at their country house, this house without electricity or indoor plumbing. Um, and so it's a, it's a September weekend with the wolves, I call it in the book, because the wolves, W-O-O-L-V-E-S, is how people in Bloomsbury refer to Leonard and Virginia, this unusual plural. And they used to also occasionally refer to themselves that way in the third person as the wolves. So they come to stay with, with uh, Leonard and Virginia at Monk's house. And the same weekend that they are there, and Virginia Woolf records in her diary all of their conversation about, about Ulysses, mm -hmm. and which she doesn't like, T.S. Eliot defends, uh, the same weekend, the same day that they arrive, D.H. Uh, Lawrence has arrived in Taos, New Mexico, and he writes a letter to his publisher in New York saying, you must get me a copy of Ulysses. I hear it's the last thing in novels, and I must read it. He's very curious, he says, to know, since he's heard himself compared to Joyce in reviews, that he wants to know with whom, in whose company he creeps toward immortality. And so the same time in September, they're all very curious and talking about or hoping to read uh, Ulysses. I'll just say that uh, one thing about Virginia Woolf's reading of Ulysses is she, as I said, hated it. But she wrote in her uh, in a letter to a friend that she felt while reading it that she was a martyr bound to a stake. And so I think that's another way in which people can identify with Virginia Woolf. One, she's turning 40 and a little bit. Um, at odds with her career success and her happiness in life, and also uh, quite at odds uh, with her uh, unhappiness in, in reading right. Ulysses, which right. has confused her. I think it's comforting to know that it confused and uh, <laughs> uh, confused Virginia Woolf. It, it gives us all a little hope, I think. Yeah. So um, it's clear that you spent so much time immersed in letters and diaries and other sources like that. Um, can you just give us a, a brief overview of what that research process was like? Well, one of the things I did want to 
do is use as much contemporaneous material, the diaries and letters. And of course, there have been definitive biographies of all of these writers and uh, great uh, works of literary criticism that analyze their their lives, their careers, the individual works. I wanted to uh, look uh, at what was happening to them almost in real time. And so I depended on these biographies for the foundation of what I was doing. But I found in a lot of archives, um, including in New York at the Berg Collection at the New York Public Library, where they have a lot of manuscripts and typescripts of Virginia Woolf and her diaries, things like that. Um, there at, at various libraries, like in Cambridge, in King's College, Cambridge, where uh, E.M. Forster lived for a long time, uh, a lot of his letters have not been published. Uh, Virginia Woolf's letters and diaries have been. And I found these unpublished letters that give a different account of his relationship with Muhammad than we've had before. And you can really track what his emotions are because in definitive biographies, they don't have, the writers don't have the leisure to look at, at so much detail of one year because they're telling mm. a larger story of an entire life. And these are mm. important right. moments, but they can only summarize them. And so the diaries and letters are just so vivid. And what's most interesting, I found, is not only the diaries and letters of Lawrence, Eliot, um, he, he also wrote a lot of letters, Forster, Wolf, but the people who knew them write diaries of their own and letters to other people. So one of the greatest and fun sources of uh, material that I found was her brother-in-law, Virginia Woolf's brother-in-law, Clive Bell, wrote hundreds of letters to his mistress, Mary Hutchinson, and those are at the University of Texas at Austin. The, the great archive there is called the Ransom Center. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky to have a fellowship there. And I lived in Austin for two months in June of 2012 and June of 2013. And I got, when you have that kind of luck, uh, the, the fellowship, you can really look much more deeply at what they have in the archives. Because if you go anywhere else, you're there for a few days, you have to do triage, you look at the most important things, you're not looking at these things that might have something in it. Clive Bell's letters, I'm sure most people have never read them. And I found this great story, for example, of his meeting of James Joyce that uh, talks about him as illiterate, and underbred, and he <laughs> compares him to a traveling salesman wearing flash jewelry. He hated Joyce. And so I realized that Virginia Woolf's reaction to Joyce is in some way colored by Clive Bell's reaction uh, to, to, to Joyce. And uh, the, the other thing is, in August of 1922, Clive Bell writes a letter to Mary Hutchinson that they were seeing Virginia and Leonard, and they were talking about Ulysses. And uh, Mary Hutchinson uh, admired Joyce. And so uh, in this letter, Clive recounts that Vi Virginia said to him, does Mary really admire this? And Clive tries to defend his mistress um, and not successfully. And then he says, well, she had a lot of interesting things to say about Ulysses, but he suggests it might have been the wrong time of the month. He says, well, Virginia was down with her monthlies, but gay and brisk enough in the head for all that. And you just, when you find something like that, I knew that I had to use that because it's so awful and it's so bitchy. I mean, the, 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 the men in the book are much bitchier than the women. I mean, so it completely turns turns every stereotype um, on its on its head. And Clive is the most bitchy 
of all, but it's exactly what Virginia Woolf was writing against, the idea that a woman's monthlies could control or have any impact on what her thoughts could be or her creative life could be. And so I thought that not only it is a bitchy thing, but it's really revelatory about why Virginia Woolf is writing the way she is writing. And uh, I just, I loved finding these things in Clive Bell's letters. And of course, most of them uh, didn't get into the book. You know, the editing and the omission uh, is, is the greater task uh, than the writing sometimes. We've been talking with Bill Goldstein, and you can find his book, The World Broke in Two, in stores right now. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I had a great time. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Associate News Editor John Marr talks about what's changing at the New York Times Book Review. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Christopher Golden, the author of Ararat, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Associate News Editor John Meyer is here to tell us all about the recent changes at the New York Times Book Review. Hi, John. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hello, John. So, uh, you've been digging into this for a while. What's going on over there at the Times? Lots is going on over there at the Times. Um, So, uh, sometime last year, uh, it was announced that the uh, various books teams at the New York Times would be folded under one books desk, uh, now chaired by Pamela Paul, who is editor of the New York Times Book Review. Um, Her title remains the same, but the New York Times Book Review, which is only one of the three parts that has been folded under the book's desk, uh, is joined by uh, the publishing reporter, uh, Alexandra Alter, and the others who occasionally pitch in on on, uh, publishing reporting, and uh, the Daily Critics, uh, who in the now absence of uh, departed chief critic, not dead, but just departed chief critic Michiko Kakatani, uh, who left after 38 years earlier this month or maybe last month, the the week very schedule. recently, yeah, very recently. Um, she's been replaced by PW alum Parl Sagel. Um, so they are all under one boat now. They are all together, and uh, part of this is. Uh, because they were trying to reduce some redundancy, multiple reviews and stuff like that. And part of it is just because uh, this is kind of what happens when you are transitioning a print-first newsroom to a digital-first newsroom in a digital-first world. Um, So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, They are working on a redesign of the book review. They've been working on a redesign of the book review since last year um, when they brought in... um, Rudy Jones from Time Magazine, where she um, oversaw features like the Time 100. And she's editorial director at the Times now, and she is working working with Pamela to figure out how exactly to change the book review and update it, as well as how to change just general coverage and oversight. Wow. So that's a lot going on. Tell us more about um, where these changes come from. You know, wh- who who decided that it was time to shake this all up and why now? Um, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question and uh, one that uh, there's been a lot of media reporting on. But um, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, you know, it's the 
executive editor of the Times um, and from the top of the food chain at the Times, which sort of said, okay, well, now now we're moving into a digital first environment. And, and uh, you can see this in a lot of uh, – the Times has been remarkably public about the way in which it has changed its newsroom to be uh, digital first and um, – it has uh, a whole column, the Times Insider, that shows e- exactly how you know the, the Times folks do their job. It also publishes uh, public reports on how it's changing its coverage and why it's changing its coverage. Uh, and so the the over overhaul of the books desk is kind of uh, actually just one of many parts of that, and it it makes sense. I mean, th- this is you know th- th- as as the Times folks love to point out, you know, the New York Times Book Review is the last freestanding newspaper section dedicated to the to books in the entire country. Um, the New York Times bestseller lists are uh, the gold standard, and uh, they and the Times in general, uh, their critics' words are uh, often law. I mean, Kakatani specifically uh, was renowned and feared by many in the industry for her ability to make or break a book with one review. So, uh, you know, they have they are important and they've remained important, but they are moving some pieces into place to try some new things. Uh, and some of and, and those come in different ways. So earlier this year, they axed a bunch of bestseller lists that made a lot of people in our industry very angry. Um, the Times' defense is uh, pretty simple. The industry isn't their audience. The book industry and authors are only a small part of the audience of the New York Times Book Review. And uh, as Pamela told me, not every one of them wants to flip through 10 pages of lists just to get to the next book. And in fact, lists, frankly, as far as they're concerned, are not the best ways to convey exactly what most readers use them for, which was discovering new books. Mm -hmm. They think they can do it better. Um, And they found ways of doing it better. Uh, Some of those are digital columns like um, tell us five things about your book which is a uh, a Q&A uh, column that asks authors five things about their book there's another one called matchbook which is also a Q&A um, and that uh, is a uh, reader advice column readers write in asking for advice on what to read and the Times recommends it um, you know matchbook is actually something that we're going to see in the pages of the New York Times book review because during research that the Times was doing to try to figure out what their readers wanted, people asked for that column and it already existed online and the light bulb went off. Mm. Oh, why isn't this in the pages of the book review? Well, it's going to be. Uh, So that's one of the things that they're doing that is sort of changing the way in which they've they've done it before. And part of that is a move from one question when a book comes across their desk for an, to uh, to another question. Uh, and, and those questions are this. Uh, earlier in the Times' existence, they would ask themselves, is this book worth reviewing? Um, or does this book merit a review? Now the question is, does this book merit coverage? Mm-hmm. And if it does, mm-hmm. what coverage? Uh, because uh, as uh, Pamela has pointed out, uh, you know, a, a parenting handbook is not exactly something that it makes sense to review as a book. Uh, it's something that's much more effective when put in a story that frames it for what it's good for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they think that there's actually ways of getting 
uh, readers to the books that they want or would like or would find useful that are better than just simply reviewing them. Makes a lot of sense. So what are the other um, practical changes that we're going to see? Well, one that will excite uh, our audience very much, uh, as well as uh, the general you know, the, the, the general audience uh, will be in the magazine on Monday. I don't want to say it now because uh, you got to read it. <laughs> you right. got to read it for something. Um, but, uh, but, but there are a few. Um, so there, there will be more exciting stuff in the book review. Like there will be more author profiles. There will be more visuals. Um, we should expect to see more book covers, uh, mm. for example, in the, uh, in the book review. And that's something that they were very clear about. We're, we're also going to look at, um, and this is all happening by the way, uh, the, the changes are, are supposed to take place in November. So we got a little bit of time, um, but it's still coming on close. Um, we should see, uh, a visual page on the back of every New York times book review, whether that's a graphic review of a book or, you know, a, a, an image from a, a, like a still from a photography book that's, that's up and coming. That's kind of a sneak peek. Uh, we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more visuals in, in the pages of the, the times as well. And one of the hopes is to, to slim down on some of the, um, multiple reviews. Uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to run more. They used to have freelancers reviewing the same book, one for the book review and one for uh, the Times culture section, sometimes, for instance. And they basically said, we, we don't want to do that anymore. If we do have two reviews, which is still a possibility, uh, they'll be much more thought through and they'll be, and maybe they'll take a different form than they, they might have beforehand. So that's some of the stuff that's happening. The other thing is they're really upping their global coverage. Uh, and I, and I think that global reading coverage, and I think that's something that we're seeing, you know, as well too. I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, Pamela was talking about when, when we spoke a couple weeks ago was, you know, one of the things that she's interested in that, that she, her research has said, you know, her readers are interested in is, you know, what does Vladimir Putin read? What does Angela Merkel read? What are they reading in Turkey? Uh, is the publishing business in Turkey being suppressed the same way that the journalists are? Uh, these aren't necessarily questions that uh, I can answer off the top of my head. And that kind of shows that there's an interest in the market. Well, it sounds great. I look forward to the uh, article on Monday. I look forward to having you read it. <laughs> great. <laughs> Thanks, John. It's always great to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 